If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is a community-supported show backed mostly by listeners like you. If you're not listening in for the first time and you aren't low-income or struggling financially, we'd love to get your direct support so we can keep diving into these critical discussions, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you believe in and value this work, you can chip in starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com support. And if you are a current or past supporter, I see you and... We are so grateful. Thank you so much. We think we shape our buildings, but our buildings shape us. First, when we say the word construction, a lot of people think of buildings, but actually construction is everything we build. And that includes the roads and the bridges. It includes the airports and the ports. It includes the dams and the power plants and the pipelines and the rail lines All of that impacts us in ways that we are not consciously aware of, and all of that alters our earth. That was Teresa Cody, an award-winning architect and fellow of the Royal Architectural Institute of Canada. Her new book, Rebuilding Earth, is a revolutionary guide to rethinking our role as planet shapers in the digital age. This is a really fascinating conversation that definitely got my thinking wheels going. We're going to talk about why we need to go beyond thinking about wellness through the individualistic lens to the systemic and structural lens. How we largely been designing our urban landscapes and buildings for machines rather than for life and what designing our cities for human well-being and life might look like and so much more so green dreamer if you're ready take a deep breath and let's dive in Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I came at architecture in a very roundabout way. My father was an architect. And he said to me, whatever you do with your life, don't do architecture because they're not appreciated. (laughs) So I thought, well, I'm going to be a doctor. So I studied pre-med and I 
realized after a day when we had to dissect husky puppies that I couldn't do it. Mm. So I walked out of the lab and I thought, oh my God, I'm going to have to quit this program, which I did. Then I thought, well, you know, I'm really no good at what I would call the wet sciences and moved over to the dry, which was the engineering. And I studied astrophysics at that time, but that's cosmology now. So that very physics, math, which I really enjoyed. And after all that, I thought, ah, I really love art and architecture. (laughs) So I really need to do my, my final degree here in architecture. But those two studies, the study around health and well-being and the study of math and physics informed my architecture. And I was really able to see very quickly a pattern that I don't think is evident to people that hadn't taken that circuitous route. And that is that our math and physics had already moved well beyond calculus and Newtonian mechanics and had moved into the nonlinear algebras, which give us the fuzzy logic that allow us to develop the digital systems that we all work with now. So the fuzzy logic that allows you to predict the weather or map ocean currents or understand human transportation patterns, information patterns. So the math and physics that we use every day to day for communication and information and for all of our industries has not yet really impacted construction or architecture. We're still designing in the industrial age model. So we still design to Newtonian mechanics. We still use calculus, which is what Newton invented to describe his theory of mechanics. So archi- uh, sorry, construction is the only industry that I can think of on the planet that hasn't shifted yet to the information age. And I see that shift as imminent and underway and My book is really about helping us to understand how the earth works, which is what this new language allows us to do, and accelerate the change in the construction industry. Mm. So the dominant wellness industry today, I feel like encourages people to think about health in a more individualistic way. So what to eat, how active to be, how much sleep to get the importance of mental health practices, and so on. But what we might not think of as much is how our environments and building designs around us influence our accessibility and lifestyles. So to preface the rest of our discussion here, I'd love for you to paint a picture for us for how architecture and construction shape our society, people's livelihoods, and our health and well-being. That's a great context. Thanks, Kamea. We think we shape our buildings, but our buildings shape us. First, when we say the word construction, a lot of people think of buildings, but actually construction is everything we build. And that includes the roads and the bridges. It includes the airports and the ports. It includes the dams and the power plants and the pipelines and the rail lines. All of that impacts us in ways that we are not consciously aware of, and all of that alters our earth. Construction employs 25% of the world's population. It's a quarter of the people. I know, no one knows that. It's (laughs) massive. And it's 25% of the global GDP. It's the biggest industry out there by far. Construction uses half of the stuff that we take out of the earth. 
and half of the energy. And we've taken more stuff out of the earth in the past two decades than we have in all of human history. And most of it's gone into construction. So it has a massive impact. I think there are two main ways that it affects us and all life on the planet. First, the grids. Now, no one even talks or thinks about the grids. And when you get in your car and you drive to work, you don't think about the shape of the road system. But actually what we've done is we've created islands between all of the roads. And there's a saying in biology that is islands are where species go to die. And when you cut off a chunk of an ecosystem, whether it's an island in the ocean or an island that you've created by gritting off the land and choking it, all the species in that island will eventually devolve. One or two will survive and maybe mutate and all the rest will die off. And we're seeing that because the extinction rate is now one to 10,000 times greater than normal. And that's according to the World Wildlife Fund. And Paul Crutzen has coined the term Anthropocene to describe this time where we've had this massive impact on other living systems. The second way I think we that construction in particular really impacts our earth and our lives is through water. And again, it's not what you might think where you think, yeah, you know, drinking water, we're draining the aquifers and cities are sinking. No, it's not just that. It's our development pattern. By 2030, 80% of us will live in coastal cities. As far as nature is concerned, a city is a desert because we have paved roads, paved roofs. It doesn't absorb water, and anything that doesn't absorb water is considered a desert. And there's a rain cycle where clouds form over the earth and they rain on the coast, and then clouds form over that biomass where they should, and then they rain inland, and then clouds form over that biomass, and they continue to rain inland for about 400 miles. And when that first zone at the coast is paved and is a quote-unquote desert, that cycle is broken. And so for 400 miles inland, you find drought. And we're seeing that now with the wildfires. The forests are drying out, the grasslands are drying out, and we're experiencing massive wildfires. So in two very direct ways, you can see that the loss of species and the devastation of our forests through wildfires are directly related to human construction patterns. Wow, this is super powerful. I'm just letting all of this sort of sink in. I think it's really powerful to look at our urban spaces as deserts because we do talk about things like food deserts, as in communities not having great access to food. But to think about urban environments being actual deserts because they they sort of discourage life from thriving here. So that's just a really powerful way to look at this. And I want to go back to, you mentioned the how our grids create these islands. Is that basically like habitat fragmentation? So when, when we have these roads that close off maybe like a small park right over here and another space over there, but our roads kind of cut off those different habitats. Is that what that refers to? It It's actually... A bigger concept than that even, when we 
patterned roads, we realized that it was most efficient to have these intersections and give us all those options to travel. So it's the best travel pattern for efficiency for us, but it doesn't work at all for nature. And that's because nature wants to live in ribbons. So when you think of natural patterns, you see a river, which is literally a long ribbon of an ecosystem. You see a coastline, which again is a long ribbon. You see a mountain range, which obviously is is not broken into little clumps. It's a long range. And you also see forest corridors. Nature wants to live in ribbons. And we, for whatever reason, have decided to live in grids. And those two are not compatible. So at a global scale, when we destroy the ribbons of nature, we impact massive ecosystems. We impact entire forest corridors. When we use our technology and our information, we can look at aerial maps and we can see the darkening of the land. And the darkening of the land is where there's water underground. And that's where the forest corridor wants to be. So all across all our cities, these darkenings are evident. And if we can, for instance, restore those forest corridors above that underground water, if you try and restore a forest corridor above an empty land, it won't grow because it, the roots are tapping into those underground rivers. So that that is the connection above and below. It's, it's Nature has a pattern on our land that our people have always been sensitive to until very recently we've always built in tune with the natural flow of the lands Mm. and you can see our old roads were always quite long and windy and and they followed riverbeds and they followed forest corridors and they followed mountain ranges and now we just impose these grids that create these islands that kill everything in them in today's world a lot of people are disassociated from nature. So we look at humans and nature being separate when we're really one part of this earth and this living ecosystem. So Mm -hmm. given this in mind, given that these grids really help to desertify nature and discourage ecosystems to thrive as they otherwise could, what are some ways that creating these grids have also affected our health and perhaps our mental health? Well, maybe to flip that around and say, you know, what can we do? There are many studies that show that people heal faster in a hospital when they can see a tree. They live longer when they're on a street where they can access trees and they even have visual access to trees. It doesn't even have to be much more than that. And of course, study after study has shown that children develop more empathy and compassion when they're allowed to explore nature. So one of the many, one of the 12, let's say, principles in my book is restore and protect eco-corridors, abandon the paved grid, and restore natural connections. And the reason for those two principles is if we can restore and protect our eco-corridors, then we have somewhere for people to go (laughs) And if people can restore these natural connections, especially for children, there are many, many benefits. Um, There are health and wellness 
benefits where we're walking, we have more fresh air, our blood pressure goes down, many of our cortisol levels and many of our um, stress responses are reduced. We also have a connection and an empathy towards that living environment, be it a forest or a coastline or whatever it is that we're experiencing that we begin to name and protect. And so there's a synergy between us being allowed access to these beautiful living spaces and their protection. And a lot of people think, well, if you just allow people in there, they're going to wreck it. But that's only if you allow them in there with their dirt bikes and their machines. But if you allow them to walk through the, the spaces, they will time after time, build communities to protect these natural spaces. We do know that chronic illnesses have been on the rise for adults and children, and mental health has been on the decline for a lot of people. So anxiety levels and stress levels, depression levels are going up, as well as things like youth suicide. So all these are very concerning, and I'm sure there are a lot of factors that contribute to that. But maybe one of the key ones is how we've reshaped our built environments mm. away from what we may have been adapted to as living creatures on this earth and towards something that is more so just out of our minds rather than observing how things function on earth and kind of mimicking that in our built environments. Yeah, you're exactly right. And that's why my principle, my first principle is designed for life, not machines. Our entire world has been built to prioritize machines and it's very stressful for us to live in. So by that, I mean, when we're asked to design anything, the first thing we're shown is where the roads are for the cars. And then we're shown where the parkade has to go for the cars. And then we're shown where the loading docks and the lanes have to go for the delivery trucks. <laughs> and then we're shown where the HVAC system is going to go which is the heating system and the fans and the pumps and the water system. And then we need to allow for the elevators and the space that's left for people is minimal, whether it's inside the building or around the building. So the fact that you're living in a world that is ultimately designed for the convenience of machines means that you are going to feel very stressed. So let's say you're sitting in a coffee shop, and you're trying to relax, drinking your coffee, which is probably not what you're supposed to do anyway with the caffeine, but you are trying to relax in a coffee shop. You can hear, if you're inside, the hum of the air conditioning and the hum of all the refrigerators. So then you say, no, I'm going to sit outside. And that low hum is exactly the frequency that a rumble of an earthquake would be. So although you think it's just a hum at a subconscious level, you're alarmed because you think there's something wrong with the earth. You wow. go outside. Yeah, I know. And you go outside and you say, I'm going to sit outside now. I don't, I don't want to sit there. And there's even a tree, which is nice, but <laughs> you're on the street and these cars are going by and these trucks are going by and there's a roar of traffic and heavy vehicles. And so again, that's like, or your subconscious, you're reading that as large, live, wild animal threats. You're reading that as moving threats that are large and dangerous, which right. they are. Cars will kill you if you step in front of them. So 
you are not actually sitting there in your coffee shop relaxing. You are stressing. And if you are able to have face-to-face communication with someone else, then you get into a state of what we call limbic resonance, and that will help you relax. But if you are just looking at your technology, that doesn't happen either. So there are many things we're doing or the only things we really have access to right now are not truly relaxing for us. And that is why if the one question we ask ourselves when we choose a place to live, when we set a policy, if we work for a city or we have the ability to change building codes or bylaws or we work with a design team around creating things for spaces, any one of those things that we can do, the first question we ask ourselves is, am I designing for life or machines first? Mm -hmm. And the answer should always be, I'm designing for life first. So to put it frankly, it really sounds like the built environments that we've been designing have been dehumanizing. And I feel like there's an obsession that we have with efficiency and productivity. And I'm wondering if how we build our environments and so many other issues we've created across the board kind of stem from this fixation on prioritizing efficiency and productivity and treating humans like we should, you know, live really fast paced lives, do as much as possible and essentially be treated like machines as well. (laughs) You're so right. There is a belief that we all have when we're working in this industry that we're designing and building a better world for people. And every time we construct anything, like if you put a kid on the beach, he's going to build a sandcastle. We're born to build. And we're born to build because we think it makes our life better. And somehow we've lost track of the values that will make our life better. We build to increase production and make money. So those are the two metrics around the GDP, the production capital and the financial capital, how much stuff we make and how much money we make. There's a new model called the comprehensive wealth model that was developed in Canada, where I'm from, and it has five capitals. And I think if we can start thinking about that, we will begin to move towards true wealth. So you're right. If we subsume our living energy to production and financial capitals, we will not thrive. And I know that's the title of your book, so I threw that in there. (laughs) Thank you. You're right. (laughs) Not survive or just live. So the the three capitals we need to add in are human capital. And human capital is around... How healthy are your people mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally? Like how how healthy and happy are they? Social capital is the well, it's the fourth. Like so, we have production and financial, which are your basic. You don't get rid of them. You do need to make some stuff. You do need to make some money. Human capital, you do need to consider that is how healthy your people are. Social capital is a concept that. We don't discuss a lot, but it's about resiliency. It's the difference between what happened after Katrina and what happened after Fukushima. Will the people pull together and help each other or will they tear each other apart? And social resiliency comes from community and community comes from 
being connected every day and knowing each other. So social capital is the fourth capital. And the fifth capital that I think is the most important, because without that we have nothing, is environmental capital. And by that I don't mean this sort of trendy new science of figuring out how many dollars in air conditioning costs a cooling forest will save you and how many dollars in fresh water costs a river will save you. No, it's true environmental capital. Like what is your nature, you know, how healthy and how vibrant are your ecosystems, whether or not you can translate that health and vibrancy into dollars, just assess them for what they are and what they need to be. Like how clean are your oceans and your coastlines? How clear are your rivers? How contiguous and healthy are your forest corridors, your marshlands, your wetlands. Those are really important to consider. And if we look at those five capitals, then it's actually impossible to design a world for machines. Angels, lost my wings, can't fly. Give me some faith. There's a sickness inside of me. You run so deep. I don't know how to heal the pain. It fills me with hate. It's a weakness I can't fight. It comes in the night. It won't leave me alone like a dark shadow. I need angels. I need angels. I guess it goes back to, you know, whatever we measure and prioritize we're going to keep striving to improve that number. So for example, right now in our current system, we're really prioritizing financial capital and looking at GTP as a determinant of how well a society is doing when it really, we've been trying to maximize that number at the cost of everything else. And for our human well-being, our ecological well-being, we really have to expand and redefine wealth because there's so many other things that matter to us as human beings than this, I guess, oversimplified uh, number. And it does help us when you apply that comprehensive wealth model, it gives you the right answer about whether or not to develop some oil fields or whether or not to build that dam. There are so many choices that we make based on purely GDP that are not in our best interest and do not increase the wealth of our country because we are not accounting for those real costs to the human social and environmental capitals. You touched on what eco-conscious habitats for humans might look like earlier with principles from biomimicry and really looking to how natural ecosystems thrive. I'm wondering if you can paint a more comprehensive picture of what a truly healthy built environment might look like that really prioritizes our collective well-being and whether there are any real life examples out there that we can learn from today. Well, I wouldn't say there's anywhere that we're building now that has got it right because there is just so much development pressure around density. So the first thing is, as I say, to design for life, not machines. So you would see a community with many fewer roads and much more green space. That would be the first indicator that something right is happening. 
And then you would see a community that has protected its waters and wetlands because fresh, without fresh water, there is no life on the land. And one thing I didn't realize was that 97% of the water on earth is salt. It's in the ocean. Makes sense when you think about it. 2% of the water on the planet is ice. So it's fresh water, it's ice, so you can't use it. So only 1% of all the water on the planet, and that's all the rivers, all the aquifers, all the lakes, all, is only 1% of the water is fresh water. And that's the water that we need to drink. And we really waste it. So the first thing is to protect your waters and your wetlands, because without that, there is no life on land and without protecting the oceans um, from our pollution, there is no life in the ocean. And without the oceans, you're really going to see that ocean atmosphere dynamic disrupted. So again, this community, this ideal community that we imagine would have protected its waters, would have green spaces, but it would also have no um, emissions. And I know that there's a big focus right now on atmosphere and emissions, but the way to really get there is not to put in wind farms or to use hydroelectric dams. It's really about putting the generation of the energy that you need where you need it. And there are two kinds of energy, and I haven't heard this conversation very often either. All renewables, that would be your solar, your wind, produce electricity. And electricity is best suited to running your lights, running your computers, running your, your data and lighting systems, and your conveyance systems. So moving things like elevators and cars, that's what electricity is good for. Then there's heat energy that is best generated by oil and gas and natural gas we can now get to 98 99% efficiency so very very little in the way of emissions and if we use waste to generate our gas we can then have a very local supply of that heat energy to give us what we need for cooking or for heating so both of those energy sources if they're well matched give us a really high efficiency and very low waste. And we don't have the transmission loss that we have right now when we have these remote, centralized, large power plant systems, which are, again, part of the industrial age model. We should diversify. So instead of me, like my, my vision of the future is not cities with high rises at high density i think that's an industrial age model because everyone had to go in and work at the factory or <laughs> work at the headquarters i think the new model is very much like a network of small communities at a lower much lower density with local energy generation in green spaces and construction no longer designed and built just to make money. We build only what we need. So if you can imagine that community, it would be somewhere where 
you basically know your neighbors, you shop locally, you telecommute, you are still connected to some kind of center where you can go if you need to see a cultural event or gather with your peers. But for the most part, you live and work locally and you live and work within the fabric of the eco corridors that have been restored. It's a really beautiful vision. Now, from where we are currently to get to this vision that you have, what are some of our biggest barriers that you see and what do you think needs to happen so that we can move in that direction? You know, it's funny. When I wrote this book last year, <laughs> I was like, this is so definitely which the way we're going. I, when, I, when I wrote the 12 Principles of Conscious Construction, I founded them on the math and physics that we already have, and I lay out the future as it is going to happen. There is no doubt we're going in this direction. We are going in this distributed energy and diffuse lower density development pattern. It's happening. But I felt when I wrote the book that it was going to take a really long time and that a lot of people were going to resist it because there's still this idea about how great density is, that it's sustainable and that you need to live in these towers and work in these towers. But with COVID-19, all that has turned on its head. People are now realizing I don't need to live and work in a tower downtown. In fact, I don't really like it. I am safer and healthier in a smaller, more rural environment. I can make that work. I want that. And honestly, to see that change in just a few months has been mind-boggling for me. Mm -hmm. And I'm so happy to see it. So I think the barriers are just falling really fast. Right. And I did want to emphasize, I feel like even within this topic of sustainability, still a lot of people look at these metrics to see what is most efficient. And drawing from these numbers on a piece of paper, a lot of people conclude that cities are more environmentally friendly and, you know, we should build up and not outwards. So mm -hmm. I agree with you in that we have to think about how we can reintegrate and rewild our urban landscapes. And rather than building these spaces where it's all high rises and wild nature can't really thrive here, and then cutting ourselves off from the rest of nature, having that sort of divide, that we should be reintegrating all of these things. So that's another way to expand our view of sustainability and efficiency through this more humane and ecologically connected lens. Well, something you just said there, it's a myth. And a lot of people, I, I spoke to Elizabeth May, who's the leader of our Green Party, and she did the afterword in my book. And she said, the one thing I learned in this book, above all else, was that I had a misconception around density and sustainability. High density takes more energy to maintain. Think about it. You're on the 30th floor of a tower. Well, for you to get up and down, there's got to be at least a couple of elevators getting you there. There have to be pumps to get your water up. There have to be heavy fans to clear your air and work with the pressure of the building to get you to the right pressure. There have to be exit stairs. So a lot of the floor space is wasted. So there's a lot of extra material 
around your space just to get you the space in the sky. And then there's a lot of extra energy and equipment required to keep you there. And then when you look at the materials that are required to feed you, all of that can't be grown near you. It has to be grown far away and shipped in. And then all the waste has to be shipped out. A very large percentage of the trucking in and out of cities is just food in and waste out. So there is an optimal density and it's somewhere between three and six stories. And it's optimal because you can walk up and down. It's optimal because when you have that kind of how building, you can get light to the bottom floor across the roadways. When you get higher than that, you need to space the buildings out further so that they have light between them and, and they seem reasonable. When you get higher than that, you begin to have to add in all these extra fans and pumps and elevators that just add to the, the energy density mm. of the building and the cost of the building. So people have done this map and they've determined that really Paris is one of the densest cities in the world and it's also a low height. It doesn't have skyscrapers and people would think that you know, maybe Hong Kong or somewhere like that is the most dense city in the world, but they're not. When you when you really look at the numbers, the high-rise cities are not the most dense because they have to be, the towers have to be spread out so much. And the energy use intensity to house someone in a high-rise apartment is sometimes 10 times more than the energy use intensity to house someone in a, a lower-rise unit. So maybe this myth kind of comes from the focus on working against urban sprawl and thinking that if we take up more land, that's bad for the environment. So we should take up as little acreage as possible and go upwards. It does. And it also comes from the idea that everyone commutes every day. And that's very wasteful because cars use so much oil and gas. But when you look at what's happened again, because we're no longer working in the industrial age, so we're not driving in and out to the factory every day, that commuting is going way down with telecommuting. Cars are becoming electric, shared. There are many changes in our commuting patterns and vehicles that are making it more reasonable for us to live further apart in these smaller communities. And the idea of people per square acre, like increasing the number of people per square acre, you can look at it very locally and you can see, yeah, it's higher. But when you generalize over the larger area, it always works out to about the same. Mm. So it, it really, it's counterintuitive in some ways, but living in high rise towers is not the future. And I always use the example of someone in the middle ages looking at a cathedral and someone saying to him, Hey, can you imagine the future? What's the future going to look like? And he would just imagine a bigger cathedral and more of them. He wouldn't imagine the skyscraper. Mm. And when we think of the future, I often see the student drawings and competitions and they're always just more skyscrapers with elevated roads between them it's just more of the same, and that's not the future. The future is very different from what we have now. We're not going to continue this development pattern because it doesn't make sense. 
Right. So it sounds like we really need a perspective shift among our dominant ideas of what a sustainable future might look like or what futuristic looks like. Because if you, I feel like if you Google futuristic, I've done this before, it's a bunch of like mechanized things, robots, and really a a bunch of tall buildings, a bunch of highways up in the sky and things like that. And that is what futuristic to a lot of people means right now. But I feel like we have to really dismantle and re-envision what that might look like. And I did want to bring this up as well. Through an understanding of environmental justice, we know that in our current built environments, Black, Indigenous communities of color, as well as low-income communities, are more likely to have unhealthy living conditions with greater exposure to toxic chemicals, less access to healthy food, worse air quality, and so forth. So I'm wondering how you think we might be able to address these inequities as a part of rebuilding built environments that prioritize our collective well-being. Absolutely. You know, you're right. We have a long history of housing poorer people in the areas that are less desirable, literally downwind of all the factories. And again, that goes back to the industrial city design. The wealthy factory owners would live upwind so they wouldn't get the toxic gases and the workers would live downwind and they would get sick. Mm. So we haven't really changed too much from that. But what is, I think, very encouraging is that it doesn't cost more to, and we're doing this in Vancouver, which is really interesting, to rip out the lanes and put in community gardens. In fact, maintaining lanes with asphalt and all of that is very expensive. But to rip them out and put in garden spaces where people can grow their own food and and enhance their food security and their food quality. And we have chickens too. Mm -hmm. So it's very possible to improve the built space and the quality of life without spending more money. The problems we see are when we go into the large housing developments and we have tall towers that are basically back to that word deserts. They have no nature. They're food deserts. They're deserts in so many ways. They're barren environments. They're not a social solution. The social solution actually costs less and works more with biomass and just letting things grow and um, really understanding the benefits of daylight, sunlight, fresh air. So, again, the plants can clean and filter the air, fresh food, There's nothing to say we can't grow our own food in most places. We're starting to see that now again with COVID. People are putting in these little victory gardens and starting to grow their own vegetables. So that's kind of lovely. There's also a lot of people don't realize the impact of noise pollution. And a lot of the communities you're talking about, they have air pollution, but they also have a lot of noise pollution because they're often very poorly placed near freeways and, uh, other noise generating buildings and noise pollution is devastating to our health. So it's really important to restore natural sounds and something else that I don't think people think a lot about, but is very important to our human condition is to build for speech, music and dance. Mm. Um, Yeah. That's very restorative. Yeah. So there's, there, there are a lot of things to consider that, really don't even pop up on the economic 
metric evaluation scales. They're, they don't cost anymore. It's just we have to change the way we think and value what's important. I feel a deep sense of longing just hearing you describe what could be for us. And what can we do as active citizens to help support this vision of rebuilding and reshaping more humane and ecologically conscious built environments for our future? Well, to help with that, I have spent 30 years as an architect building and being involved in the design and construction of literally millions of square feet of new building. And what I realized was we needed a new framework. So that's what I developed with the 12 principles of conscious construction. So I'd really love for people to at least take a look at those because they do outline a very simple way of making these changes. And when you look at things like protect all waters and wetlands, which is the second principle, it's an idea, but it's also something that's enforceable by bylaw and by code. So we saw in the early 2000s big code changes around energy. And in the past 10 years, we've seen a 90% drop in the energy requirements of buildings. So if people have a framework and then work together to change their bylaws and their laws and their codes to build that framework, then change can happen very rapidly. But if people let developers and architects and engineers into their community to throw out the community plan, which happens every day, and to undermine the community bylaws with exemptions, then the community is not going to get what it wants. And I think that's a big pushback we all need to make now. We need to understand what we want because we build what we imagine. And if we imagine that futuristic, terrible future, that's what we'll build. But if we can imagine the world that we're beginning to see glimpses of now, we, sh we can build that, we will build that. And the way to get there is through the existing structures that we have through codes and bylaws and laws. So it, there, there is a mechanism and it has worked. And that's what I would encourage people to do, to just be clear about what they want for their community and not let people come in and undermine that community plan. That's the very first step. So Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Teresa's work and also be sure to check out her latest book, Rebuilding Earth, you can head to TeresaCody.com and she's also on LinkedIn with her name, Teresa Cody. Teresa, we appreciate your time sharing your expertise, inspirations, and your beautiful vision of what could be with us here. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? We will create the future we imagine. So it's up to us to imagine a beautiful future.
Well, we've come full circle and are coming to a close here. I know you hear me say this in every episode, but having your direct support as the listener is really important for our independent platform to continue and for us to be able to continue exploring a lot of these topics often sidelined by mainstream media, which in the US, 90% of media is controlled by just six corporations, which I think is pretty problematic and why I personally try to always financially support the independent outlets that I read and listen to. So I highly encourage you to do that as well, whether it's, you know, Green Dreamer or other independent media platforms that you learn from. I highly recommend supporting these outlets financially if you're able to. So again, if you can, I'd love to invite you to join us on Patreon starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com support. Today's song feature is I Need Angels by Adrian Sutherland, and I also want to thank our audio producer, Scott Donnell, and our post-production content manager, Elizabeth Joy. We appreciate your support so much. Thank you for taking this time to learn with us, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. I need angels, I need angels.